0: I think the main thing is that patients, actually, when they first meet us, have no idea what's hit them. They don't understand a lot of what's just been said to them. It does get better. Just stay positive. Do your absolute best to get through this. There are certainly lots of different medications that can help so that we get you through treatment with as minimal side effects as possible. That's the aim of the treatment. Let somebody on the team know if you're having any problems at all. The earlier we can address any issues that come up, the better we can tackle it. Welcome to the Beyond 5 Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. And Beyond 5 is the face of head and neck cancer in Australia. My name's Julie McCrossin. And in this episode, we're talking about oropharyngeal cancer, a cancer that usually starts in the tongue, tonsil or throat and is caused by the human papillomavirus, HPV, or smoking or drinking. And we're going to find out all about it with a head and neck cancer surgeon based in Perth, Dr David Hall. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Julie. Good morning.
0: Good morning. David, tell us just a little bit about what you do in your clinical practice, just so we get to know you first.
1: Um, well, I have a, a broad ENT practice, which is basically ear, nose and throat surgery, but my subspecialty is in head and neck cancer surgery. Uh, I do the majority of that surgery in the uh, public hospital sector at Fiona Stanley Hospital in Perth. Uh, it generally involves addressing a range of head and neck cancers as well as oropharyngeal uh, lesions, uh, and that includes such things as sinonasal tumours, tongue tumours and uh, uh, laryngeal tumours, as well as any any uh, surgery required to treat any cancers that may have spread to the uh, the neck or other local structures.
0: Now, now this word oropharyngeal we've been asked to, to focus on, what does that mean and and, and and what is the oropharynx that's part of that title? So what sort of cancer is it and where is it?
1: Um, the oropharynx is essentially the middle part of the uh, pharynx. The pharynx is basically the anatomical term we use to refer to the throat. Uh, it's made up of three parts. The uh, part that sits at the top at the back of the nose is called the nasopharynx. That then moves down into the oropharynx, which is found uh, at the the Back of the mouth. Below that is, is found the hypopharynx. The role of the throat is essentially to direct um, food, drink, and air down into the uh, appropriate area. So it's a fairly straightforward anatomical tube, but it has a lot of complex physiological functions. So, uh, for example, it's responsible for moving food and drink um, through your uh, throat from the back of your mouth down into your esophagus or your food pipe and into your stomach. But it also needs to be able to uh, move air from Uh, when you're breathing down into your lungs.
0: And when you're talking to patients, who've got this diagnosis, you probably don't say oropharyngeal first up, do you? It's not a common word. What other ways may it be referred to?
1: That's right. We would normally just call that the throat, but it's, it's probably better for the patient uh, from an understanding point of view to, to actually localise where the tumour was. And as you mentioned before, the oropharynx is divided up into a number of what we call subsites, and those would commonly include the tonsil, uh, the base of the tongue and the, and the back wall of the throat or the posterior pharynx.
0: And what causes oropharyngeal cancer?
1: Well, there's three, um, there's three main causes for oropharyngeal cancer. I suppose it's best initially to, to be clear about what we're talking about. The vast majority of these cancers are squamous cell cancers. Um, and our understanding of, of squamous cell cancers is that they're, they're caused by um, alcohol, smoking or tobacco and viruses, in particular human papillomavirus.
0: And in recent years, that human papillomavirus, or HPV, Cancers caused by that are becoming more common. Is that right?
1: That's correct. They are becoming more common. I, it's hard to know for sure exactly why that is, but it's probably a number of uh, factors, including better detection. So we're becoming um, more aware that it's a relevant factor, and we're um, we're now able to do a better tests to determine if it is a significant um, uh, cause of the cancer. But also changes in um, different types of sexual activity in the community is contributing to it. Uh, what we do know that is um, oral sex is a is a risk factor for. Development developing um, oropharyngeal uh, HPV.
0: And we'll come back uh, later in this episode and talk in uh, a lot more detail about HPV, partly because uh, it is getting a lot more attention internationally. But but just coming back to uh, tobacco, that's... uh, uh, tobacco people who are listening to this, who may be smoking or may be drinking alcohol, is there any safe level of usage for tobacco and for alcohol? Like, what's our public health message in terms of preventing these cancers?
1: There is considered to be a safe level of alcohol and the, and the recommendations are, are, are well known. It, it generally includes one or two standard drinks a day with several days off, uh, you know, alcohol-free days per week and it varies between uh, men and women. There's no safe level of smoking so that includes obviously cigarettes, cigars, pipes, any types of chewing tobacco. Uh, we know that there's no safe level of um, of smoking and it, actually it's it's important to mention that a combination of those two things can actually uh, increase your risk even more significantly developing head and neck So uh, you know, smoking obviously is a a risk for cancer, but in combination with alcohol, it seems to it seems to cause even more damage. Um, It exposes you know more carcinogens that can um, can uh, accelerate the process.
0: And it's my understanding that if you are diagnosed with uh, oropharyngeal cancer or throat cancer, tonsil cancer, tongue cancer, it's important to stop smoking and stay stopped. And why is that so?
1: Absolutely. Well, some of that has to do with the risk that um, exposing the lining of your throat to those carcinogens has in developing potentially other cancers. Uh, so it's important to stop to try and reduce your risk of developing second or even third head and neck cancers. The other reason is these uh, the treatments uh, that we use to... Uh, um, to manage these cancers can be uh, challenging, and uh, and it's important to be as healthy as possible. And even you know there's good evidence that stopping smoking um, and reducing alcohol intake will improve your outcomes, even if you're able to do that for you know a week or two before you start any treatment.
0: I've also heard it said that if you can stay off the tobacco, uh, you have a, a better chance of the treatment working and of the cancer not coming back.
1: That's true. Yeah, that's correct.
0: Do, do you recommend stopping drinking, or what's the advice there?
1: I think while you're while you're undergoing your treatment. Uh, most people would find that alcohol is not particularly palatable uh, for a whole range of reasons, and um, uh, alcohol is considered to be a carcinogen, not just for head and neck cancer, but for you know relevant in other cancers as well, and um, for general fitness, uh, health, and, and to improve chance of recovery, it's it's best we you know we advise patients to try and reduce or stop you know alcohol consumption completely.
0: So what are the the common symptoms of oropharyngeal cancer? What is usually the, the reason that people think something's wrong?
1: oropharyngeal um, cancer can uh, present in a number of different ways the the more common symptoms that people experience and would know about would be things such as the feeling of irritation or discomfort in their throat sometimes they present with uh, more obvious pain but occasionally um, oropharyngeal cancer can present with with no symptoms um, that affect you know s- um, anything to do with eating and drinking it can um, it can actually present occasionally with just with evidence that the cancer has spread into some of the glands in the neck and so that would would be with say a, a lump in the neck which is often the first, um, the first sign that uh, patients notice.
0: And are those lumps effectively metastases? And if so, what does that mean?
1: So metastasis refers to the situation where the cancer, uh, some of the cancer cells have migrated from the site of the original tumour away to other sites in the body. In head and neck cancer, uh, the first area they will um, move to um, are usually the glands in the neck. So those are lymph nodes which are responsible for, for draining um, tissue fluid and you know sending it back into the bloodstream. Cancer in those areas are continued considered to be loco-regional metastases, but they don't carry with them the same significance as if there's been a metastasis f- further um, into the body, such as in the lung or, or the liver. In those situations, we know that the cancer uh, has potentially spread into all areas. So uh, oropharyngeal cancer, in fact, all head and neck cancers, um, if they have spread to the glands in the neck, are, are still considered to be curable with whatever the most appropriate treatment is.
0: I see. And what about vo- changes to your voice or an earache? Can they be indicators of oropharyngeal cancer?
1: It can be oropharyngeal cancer. Um, it would be uncommon for patients to develop a, uh, a change in their voice, but um, it is, um, it is a, uh, possible for people to develop um, you know, fairly benign symptoms like earache, which is often um, often put down to, others, you know, to other causes, uh, and that's to do with the fact that there are nerves which supply some sensation in the, in the side of the throat and also into uh, some parts of the ear. So um, in certain patients that can, be, um, that can be one of the presenting signs, that's correct, yeah.
0: And just letting people know you're listening to the podcast series from Beyond Five about head and neck cancer. And we're talking to Dr. David Hall, uh, who's a surgeon in Perth uh, who works with head and neck cancer patients as well as other ear, nose, and throat ca- uh, patients as well. Uh, let's go to this question of how it's diagnosed. And, and just first of all, if a general practitioner happens to be listening to this, because of course, most of us need a GP to refer us to an ear, ear nose, and throat doctor like yourself. Uh, what should a GP be watching out for, and when should they consider referring someone on uh, for more testing?
1: Well, a lot of those symptoms that we were talking about before, Julie, can obviously be associated with much more benign conditions, and and usually are, you know, simple ulcers in the mouth or pains in the throat are much more likely to be related to, you know, other benign viruses which um, are not going to cause any cancer. Um, my message for you know GPs and for for people who do develop. Um, some of those symptoms we were talking about is is really to to monitor them uh, with regards uh, the duration of the symptoms so we we start to become concerned if if ulcers don't resolve in a timely manner so over the space of say a week or two or if patients uh, throat irritation or or pain doesn't settle down over several weeks um, in that situation I think it's um, it's reasonable to go along and see your GP uh, and ask them to do an examination for you and um, if there's an obvious cause found then it may well be that GP can can manage that um, appropriately. If the GP um, is unsure as to, you know, the, the, the reason for the, the symptoms, particularly if there's any ongoing, you know, if they've been carrying on for a significant period of time, then I think it's reasonable to consider a referral. In the situation where patients present with a, a lump in the neck, again, that can be because of more benign conditions such as, you know, infections. But um, if a lump persists after some appropriate treatment, such as a course of antibiotics, then, um, then it's reasonable to move on with some investigations. Uh, and my advice for GPs would be any lump that persists for um, a reasonable period of time should probably be investigated um, either with an ultrasound or a scan of the neck.
0: So uh, let's imagine my GP has referred to me to a surgeon like yourself. What do you do to check out whether I've got oropharyngeal cancer or not?
1: Well, the first part of um, the assessment would involve a, dis- a discussion with you, we'd, we'd run through um, your symptoms and, and the duration of any symptoms. I'd also usually take a, a medical history just to um, determine whether there's any other significant medical problems. We'd discuss any potential risk factors for head and neck cancer. A, a thorough medical history would also include, you know, a list of your medications and other allergies. Then we would move on to a, um, a thorough physical examination um, that would involve an examination of all of the area inside your mouth, um, an examination of your neck, which is designed to try and determine if there are any palpable uh, lumps or bumps anywhere, and then we. When
0: you say palpable, you mean you're you're squeezing my neck and checking exactly. if you can feel anything.
1: That's exactly right. Feeling the neck, and we divide the neck up into a number of different areas, and so that can help. Uh, certain lumps in certain areas can help guide us to, to uh, a lesion that and um, its original location, and then usually the final part of the examination involves passing a small flexible camera. Uh, into the nose that allows us to then examine uh, the nasopharynx, the oropharynx and the structures further down such as your your voice box and the top of your uh, esophagus.
0: Uh, Dr. David Hall, I'd just say, as as you may know, I myself have had a, a diagnosis of head and neck cancer, oropharyngeal cancer, and have have had that flexible tube poked down my nose. And I, I, I think many uh, ordinary people don't realise that when the GP is looking inside your mouth, they can't see all the way down to that lower area of the throat. And that by squirting a little bit of local anaesthesia and then putting that flexible tube with the camera down the nose, you can see the parts of the back of my tongue and the lower throat that you can't just see through the mouth. That's right, isn't That's it? That's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. The, the flexible nose endoscope or the flexible camera tube allows us to examine all of those areas in the in the oropharynx and um, lower throat and to examine the lining in particular. Uh, it allows us to examine the lower parts of the tonsil, uh, which are difficult to examine just through the mouth with a, with a light, uh, and also the, the back of the tongue or, or the base of the tongue.
0: So let's imagine you've put that flexible tube down the patient's nose, and you see a whole lot of lumps and bumps. What happens next?
1: If it, some of those structures can be considered normal, and um, obviously can raise some concerns, but if we have, uh, see a lesion that can uh, that raises some concern, then what we need to do is to try and take a biopsy of of that lesion to determine what the lesion's caused by. A lot of the time, that requires a general anaesthetic because, uh, as you mentioned before, those areas are difficult to access uh, through the mouth while the patient's awake. Occasionally, lesions in the tonsil uh, can be biopsied in the office, under um, local anaesthetic, but usually it requires a, a short anaesthetic. The procedure we'd normally book patients for is called a panendoscopy, which essentially is uh, the term we use to refer to a procedure where we examine all of the areas of the, the throat, and that then gives us the ability to take a sample of, of the area of concern. We would send that to the laboratory, and usually within uh, several days, we would have a clear answer from the pathologist about whether that um, that area of concern represents a cancer or, or a more benign, less concerning pathology.
0: And if it is a cancer, what happens next?
1: Uh, if, if the uh, if the biopsies confirm a cancer, then the next step would be a series of investigations um, to try and determine the extent of the tumour, um, to determine whether there's ev- any evidence that the, um, the lesion has uh, spread any uh, tumour cells into the glands in the neck or anywhere else in the body. So they, um, that would include a CT scan of the neck and uh, and also a PET scan, which is a, a positron emission um, a scan, essentially a functional scan, uh, to, to, uh, to demonstrate areas of increased metabolic Activity.
0: We're going to look in detail uh, in other of our podcasts in this series at things like surgery, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy. Mm. But just in a nutshell, if it is necessary to treat an oropharyngeal cancer, how do you decide? what is the best treatment?
1: The way to assess that is in uh, in what we call a multidisciplinary clinic. So uh, the vast majority of head and neck cancer patients in Australia will, at some point in their workup, be discussed in what's called an MDT. Uh, they're usually held in the, the larger public hospitals with uh, big head and neck cancer centres. They offer uh, an excellent way for the patient to access information and, um, and the expertise of a whole range of specialists who work in head and neck cancer. They'll normally include uh, several head and neck cancer surgeons uh, and they will usually also include specialists in radiation or radiotherapy and, and chemotherapy. After we've discussed those, each of the patients, the things that we'll focus on will obviously include the site of the, of the lesion uh, and, and also other, other factors the, uh, including the extent of any other disease in the neck or the rest of the body uh, and then patient factors you know, including age and other medical problems.
0: And when you use that word lesion, what, why do you use that word instead of tumour?
1: I use that word and my colleagues generally use that word if we're not sure about the, a clear diagnosis. I think that, that can sometimes generate a little bit of confusion. But until we have a clear histopathological histopatho- um, diagnosis, um, I think it's more correct to, uh, to use the term lesion um, or tumour, which, um, which could refer to either a benign or a more sinister uh, malignant lesion
0: and for some people while surgery might be the best initial treatment they may have radiation therapy as well isn't is that right
1: that's correct in in the in the not so um, distant past generally all of our head and neck cancers were treated with with surgery but uh, there's been some significant developments in both radiotherapy and chemotherapy and these days for a range of factors we know that actually uh, oropharyngeal tumors um, are generally uh, best treated initially with a combination of chemo and radiotherapy. Uh, surgery um, for oropharyngeal cancers is, is often reserved for the situation where the cancer does, uh, either doesn't respond fully to the treatment or initially responds but then recurs.
0: And there are two different types of surgery, aren't there? There's now robotic surgery available in some parts of Australia, and then there's more traditional or conventional surgery. Uh, Is there anything we should know about that?
1: Yeah, there is. The reason we've embraced using chemo and radiotherapy to treat oropharyngeal cancers is that the surgery we used to use was fairly destructive and carried with it a lot of morbidity. Because of the difficult location, uh, it would sometimes involve opening up someone's lip or jaw to get access to the to the back part of their tongue or tonsil these days we can use what's called transoral robotic surgery or tours which allows us to uh, access those more posterior parts but without um, without the challenges of having to uh, open up someone's lips or, or jaw to get there
0: so does the, the robot literally go down the person's mouth?
1: It does. That's, that's exactly right. It's got a number of arms on it. It has one arm that acts as a retractor to, uh, to hold the patient's jaw open and tongue uh, forward, and then a number of other arms that uh, are used to, to retract and make incisions. Uh, it's usually controlled by a surgeon operating in a console in the, uh, in the corner of the operating theatre. And, and, uh, a a theatre nurse and an assistant will, um, will be operating at the patient's side.
0: Dr. David Hall is our guest and we're talking about oropharyngeal cancer and you're listening to the Beyond 5 Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. And if you'd like more information about head and neck cancers, you can go to the Beyond 5 website, www.beyond5.org.au and you can find patient videos, 3D animations and answers to all your questions about head and neck cancer. Uh, Look, Dr. Hall, before we uh, just get your basic advice on how... How to prepare yourself for treatment for the listener who may be listening to this before they, they start their treatment, I'd just like to talk to you for a few minutes about uh, the human papillomavirus. We mentioned at the beginning that oropharyngeal uh, cancer can be caused by smoking and alcohol or a combination of uh, of them both, or, or from the human papillomavirus. What is that virus and how is it transmitted?
1: The human papillomaviruses actually uh, refers to a group of viruses. There's probably over 150 um, different types of uh, HPV. Most of them, the vast majority of them are what we'd consider benign vi- viruses that don't have any uh, cause any significant problems for humans. They are fairly ubiquitous, which means that they're found um, in the vast majority of the population at, at different times. Most of us will be exposed to some types of the uh, HPV at uh, different times of our life. And most of us will actually uh, clear that from our system, you know, with our immune system. There are a number of more sinister versions of the virus, which we know about. They're generally uh, labelled as type 16 and 18, and those are the types that we know have been associated with Uh, oropharyngeal and cervical cancer. The the less sinister types can cause skin warts and papillomas, but the vast majority of them uh, will be cleared from the immune system within several years of exposure and won't leave us with any significant um, problems.
0: So sort of the good news then is that while uh, something like 80% plus of the population will get some sort of HPV virus at some point, our immune system will throw it off and it's just a smaller unlucky group that uh, may develop cancer later in life but I think it's important to mention too that we've now got the HPV vaccine that all our boys and girls are getting in Australian schools. I think most people associate it with cervical cancer but it causes head and neck, oral, anal and penis cancer as well, doesn't it?
1: That's exactly right, yep. In our area of um, head and neck surgery, HPV cancers are becoming, as we mentioned before, more common for a range of reasons and we're certainly getting better at detecting them. They generally are considered to be uh, a better type of head and neck cancer because they generally respond better to uh, any of the treatments that we have to offer for them. Obviously, some patients have HPV in conjunction with risk factors associated with smoking and alcohol and smoking and alcohol can reduce your outcomes from the the treatment even if you have HPV-related cancers. But generally speaking, HPV-related head and neck cancers uh, will behave better and respond better to the treatments than than other types of head and neck cancer.
0: And because of that, the staging for HPV-related oropharyngeal cancer has changed. We haven't really talked about staging, but just in a nutshell, why is it significant that the staging has changed for HPV-related oropharyngeal cancers?
1: Head and neck cancers, like a lot of um, other cancers, are stage based, based on a system called the TNM staging system. It stands for tumour, node and metastasis, um, and the, the relevance for head and neck cancer in the adjustments to that staging system is that we've found over recent years that higher staged tumours, if they were related to the virus, were actually behaving um, in a much better fashion than some of the others. Uh, And the relevance really is that we can now give patients a a better prognosis about how they're going to recover, how they're going to behave when they have a HPV related tumour. The significance of that hopefully in the future will be that we can actually reduce uh, some of the treatments that we use to manage HPV related tumours, which means hopefully maintaining good cure rates, but with less uh, potential medium and long-term side effects from the treatment.
0: As I understand it, just staying with HPV a little bit longer, that risk factors for an HPV-related head and neck cancer, and as I said earlier, I've had, had this myself, having more sexual partners and also having oral sex, but that the gap in time between when you experience some sort of change in your DNA to begin the cancer journey it could be many, many years between that that moment and when you actually manifest symptoms of cancer.
1: That's correct. So parts of the virus uh, infiltrate into the um, into the deeper layers under the surface, particularly in areas where there's changes in the, the types of tissue in our oropharynx. That means that in the areas, say, between the lining of your throat and your tonsil or the lining of your throat and the back of your tongue, there is a little space where the virus can infiltrate into the deeper layers. And as you mentioned, parts of the virus Infiltrate into our DNA and then can lodge there for, for many years. We don't fully understand uh, why, then, you know, some people progress onto a tumour, but that can take, you know, anywhere from years to decades before it manifests as a, as a tumour
0: what is our basic message to the partners of people who've been diagnosed with an HPV-related cancer? Are our partners more at risk?
1: They are not at more at risk, and obviously this can generate a lot of concern and, and worry for couples, but generally there there is no increased risk. Or we don't know of any increased risk for partners of patients who have oropharyngeal cancer related to HPV. As, as we were alluding to before, it's more likely that it has been an exposure many years beforehand, so it doesn't uh, indicate any other ongoing problems.
0: Many people who've had this diagnosis feel concerned that their partner may think they've been promiscuous or unfaithful. What do you say to patients who, who raise those sorts of concerns?
1: I usually reassure them, Julia, that that's extremely un, un, unlikely. For the reasons we were mentioning before, the vast majority of these HPV related infections have have been contracted many years beforehand. Uh, and so it's important, I think, to reassure partners of uh, people with um, HPV related head and neck cancer that it's not necessarily the related to um, promiscuity during their relationship.
0: And you could have just had bad luck anyway with a very small number of sexual partners 20 or 30 years before. That's exactly right. Let's uh, just quickly say to any young person who's listening who uh, is able to get the HPV vaccine, so first up, you try to get the HPV vaccine before you're sexually active. Is it worth using a condom as well? What, what's your view it there? It is
1: It is worth using a condom because it's not com- um, it's not completely protective, uh, and there are some versions of uh, HPV which are, are transmitted via direct uh, skin contact. So a combination of uh, regular condom use and the HPV vaccine is probably the best method management that we have for the moment for trying to prevent uh, these cancers
0: look david just before i let you go if someone's listening to this and they're about to begin treatment what can they do to prepare themselves what's your basic advice uh, to the person with the diagnosis and indeed if they're lucky enough to have a partner or a good friend with them what's your advice to the the support person as well
1: My advice to uh, both of them, Julie, is to ensure that they have all the information that they need and that they've had the opportunity and to have all of their questions answered. Um, Obviously, their appointments for different treatments will be uh, allocated to them. Uh, From a general fitness and health point of view, the best thing they can do is to stop smoking if they are and to maintain a good uh, healthy diet with some regular exercise the as I mentioned before the um, the treatment whether it's surgery radiotherapy or chemotherapy can be fairly onerous and being you know healthy and and as fit as possible is is always going to stand you in good stead for a support person I think it's just being aware that it is a challenge having treatment for head and neck cancer and it's nice to have all the information available and some contacts at the hospital or whatever you're being treated if there's any problems uh, it's always better to to be proactive in managing those things, such as difficulty swallowing and maintaining a good 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 weight during your treatment, are, are very common. And so, having avenues to get in and discuss these issues with your uh, doctor or, or nurse, you know, specialist is very important.
0: And just keep talking to your team about whatever worries you that would be my tip (laughs) absolutely
1: yes yes it's 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 amazing how much um, worry can be generated by misunderstandings or or lack of information and and that we know um, can have an effect on how you you manage to uh, negotiate your treatment
0: Well, look, I'd like to thank Dr. David Hall, a head and neck cancer surgeon and an ear, nose and throat surgeon from Perth. Uh, I'd like to thank him for his advice and to remind you that you've been listening to the Beyond 5 Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. And if you'd like more information, just go to Beyond Five's website, www.beyond5.org.au, where you'll find patient videos, 3D animations and answers uh, to all your questions. And remember, this podcast series is providing general information only so please talk to your own doctor or clinical team about any questions or concerns you may have and you can also call the cancer council information and support line it's a free call all over australia 13 11 20 i'm julie mccrossan thanks for listening